Today we'll be looking at a psalm. So if you would, please, if you have your scriptures handy, please turn to Psalm 121. Psalm 121. Jack, I'll be using this. Psalm 121, I'd like to read these eight verses to you. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going, your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This particular song is this it is a song, and it is also a psalm that we call, because it is part of the Word of God in these psalms, of course, but it is something to be sung, and it is one of these song of ascents. Now, <clears throat> at the beginning, you probably saw the title in your scriptures where it said, A Song of Ascents. Now, that word ascents means to, to go up or to rise up. Uh, there is a particular set of scriptures or psalms that are labeled Song of Ascents. Uh, they were not written that way. They were written by the author, some David. I think, I think David wrote about four. I think Solomon wrote one. There are ten others. There are 15 psalms of ascents in the scriptures, in the psalms. And they have to do with the subject of rising up to worship or rising up to go to Jerusalem and ascending the mountain and many times, even the priests, when they ascend the stairs to go into the temple, they will sing one of these psalms of ascent. And so the idea behind this is that they have been separated out from the other psalms and put in the scriptures in their own location right after Psalm 119. And so, you know, Psalm 119 is, is, a, is, is used extensively in, in worship. But also this is the second one listed in the scriptures concerning a psalm of ascent. So, with that in mind, I want you to understand that we don't know who wrote this particular one, even though from its, I would say from its contents, I would not be surprised if David wrote this particular psalm. If anyone in the scriptures that we would say, well, I wonder who lifted their eyes up to the hills. Well, I would imagine that David probably many times lifted his eyes up to the hills and, and say, where can I, where can I find refuge? And so this is one of the reasons why I suspect that David may be the author of it. But as we can see, these psalms are sung by pilgrims many times when people are going to Jerusalem. And so as people approach God, they approach the hill of Zion, they approach the city that is built on this mountain, they will have these words many times on their lips. And so with that in mind, 
I would like to just kind of give you the idea of what the other psalms are about before we just go on to this one. But in Psalm 120, the idea in that psalm is God's presence during distress. And so as pilgrims are going to Jerusalem, or I think we can all safely say, as we live our lives going to God, there is a song that we can, that we can sing concerning God's presence. And in the psalm that we're looking at today, 121, concerns the joyful praise to the Lord for preserving his people. And you'll see very quickly, as I, as I already read, that the Lord is the keeper of his people. And the next psalm, 122, is a prayer for Jerusalem itself. Psalm 123, there is patience uh, for God's mercy that is being requested. And also in Psalm 124, it's a declaration that our help comes from the Lord. And 125, it is a prayer that God's blessing be upon his people. And in 126, this psalm is about the Lord has done great things. And 127, God's blessing is on man's effort. But if you recall, uh, it is uh, unless God does the building, well, then it's not built. But of course, we are used in his work, are we not? And 128, joy for those who follow God's way. And 129, it's a cry for help to the Lord. And 130, as we ascend to God's temple, a prayer for repentance. 131, a surrender as a child to the Lord. And 132, God's sovereign plan for his people. And 133, a praise of brotherly fellowship and unity. And 134, a praise to God in his temple. And so these psalms are on the lips of pilgrims. And we qualify. We are one of God's people, are we not? And these are great psalms for you to read and to have their teaching and their words in your heart and mind as you go uh, and you rise up from your bed, as you, uh, uh, as you have in your own hearts, your goings in and your goings out. So, with that in mind, let's begin with verse number one, a song of ascent. And I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come? Now, if you have the ESV, that last phrase is a question. From whence does my help come? But if you have the King James Version, it has no, no question there. It's more of a statement as, as stating, this is where my help comes. And so we can look at this from these two different directions because in the next verse, it actually tells us where the help comes from. And so it is like in this classic Hebrew poetic form where verses or statements are repeated. They're stated and then repeated with more explanation behind it. And so what we have here is the author lifting up his eyes. So when we think of lifting up our eyes, it gives us the idea that the reader, or that is the writer, the one who is singing this, the one who has penned this, is really not in the hills. He is looking to the hills. And so we have an acknowledgement of where his position is. He is in the valleys or he is in the areas below. And he may not have what he needs, which are in the hills, whether it be support, whether it be protection, whether it be a place of refuge, whether it be a place where he's to meet others. But no matter where that is, no matter what his needs are, he is not there and he's casting his eyes up to that. And it is an acknowledgement of where his help is coming from. So we as people, as pilgrims, we need to acknowledge our position. Many times positioning is all 
important when it comes to understanding our relationship to God. I think it helps us understand the real meaning of humility. To approach someone eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, as an equal, uh, may be appropriate at times. But when it comes to God, we should always have our eyes cast upward. Now, I'm not talking literally. I'm talking metaphorically. But it's not wrong to lift our eyes up to heaven, is it not? Because it does remind our whole body and our whole soul that God is above us. And he is in his holy mountain. And this is where uh, many times the help is. Now, I have a theory. And, of course, this is just my idea. I have... I have some Scottish blood in me, and I'm, I don't know if I should be proud of that or not. But my grandmother used to tell me about uh, we had our own crest and everything. But, you know, sometimes just hanging something over your garage door is like a crest, I suppose, to some people. <laughs> you know, because it seems like when my family, my roots grew up in West Virginia, a lot of people came from Scotland and uh, they migrated to West Virginia. Now, I don't know why. I mean, there are mountains there, but... It seems like that was a hard place to go to. And uh, I've, been th I've, I've been on a train through Scotland. And frankly, it's kind of a rough area. It's like there's more rock than grass. And there's, it's like the only thing that can live there are goats and Scots, I suppose. But it's a rough place. But I'll tell you what. It's a hardy place. Only tough people can make it there. But if you wanted to survive and you wanted to, uh, shall we say, escape from someone who is your enemy, I would say take the high ground. Take the place where there are places that can be fortified. And this is what God has done for his people in this world, has he not? He is our rock. He is our place of refuge. It is to him that we go when we are pursued by enemies. And so it sounds like a life of, I don't know, what you would say, of a coward. You know, they're always running. No, I don't think so. I don't think so, because cowardice is something that's measured by prideful men, I think. And I think true bravery is standing up for what is virtuously representative of our God. And we must do it in any time. And what the enemies that we have reminds me of the enemies that David had when Saul pursued him. Reminds me of of all the pilgrims that had no earthly home, but were living in tents and skins. And now we have this place that we can lift our eyes up to. And it is God. God is our refuge. And so the writer is positioning himself at the foot of God, below God, looking up to God. And it gives us the idea that we, our rightful place is at the foot of God in a humble way. So, what should we be looking up to? The rocks and the grass and the places to hide? Well, I suppose if you were literally being chased by an enemy. But let's just say that we're pilgrims. I would say that we'd be looking to God in the purposes of God. We can read in the scriptures and we can hide in those purposes. And when I say hide, it's not a cowardly act. It's more of an act of saying that, where will I get my strength what will I do when all the pains of life and the evil in this world? Where can I look? Where can I cast my eyes? It is up to God and his purposes. 
the purposes of God. And then we can look at his attributes, the attributes of God. He's the Almighty. And sometimes we just don't think enough about that, the Almighty, because he's just not the most powerful person. I mean, what good is it to be the most powerful person when there are circumstances that can overcome you? He is all-powerful. There is no power that is outside of his hand. He is completely and perfectly in control of all things. And he has all knowledge. Can you imagine having all power without all knowledge? Why? Why, that would be power that wouldn't know what to do. That would be chaos. And so, for God to be God, he has to be perfect in his knowledge, perfect in his wisdom, perfect in his omnipresence, perfect in his power. And those are just the natural attributes. We should have our hearts set upon the things above. And when we cast our eyes up to see our God and to know that he is our keeper and our strength, then let us not hold back on the refuge that we are hiding in. Let our hearts rest in the Almighty, the All-Knowing, the Omnipresent, and He is the one who is completely holy and righteous and just. And being the one who is, who is filled with sin, He is the one that's filled with mercy and with grace. And when the Omnipotent has designs to keep the ungodly, then we have reason to really rest in God. He is immutable in all of his promises. He is never going to say, well, I should have thought that one through, or I regret that I signed my name on that contract. He is not like that. His covenant has ordered all things and are sure. And all that we see at his hand is delivered to us by providence. By his hand, from the beginning, we say, where is the hand of God? It is everywhere. We cannot stay his hand. It is not as though I have not seen lightning fall from heaven, and therefore I have not seen his hand. His hand is everywhere. How does his finger feel? It is the touch of guilt when we have sinned against his law. How does his power consume us? Look at the creation and all that is done and how he has abounded. And this is the word that Paul uses many times. God's grace abounding toward us. Well, we don't seem to see that, do we? Because God in his wisdom has set this world in such a way that the wicked will say, I don't see the wicked punished. I think I'll wait before I repent. But the wise, they know, they see the hand of God. And they repent and they deal with the king before he comes to do battle. Because the battle is a righteous battle. In his abounding toward us, I feel more like a grain of sand watching a tsunami come. He is abounding in his providence. The predestination of God is something to hide in, something to rest upon, something to lean upon. It is not something to argue with. Who are we to argue with God? Who does he think he is, God? Yes, that is the answer. He is God. And therefore, let us depend upon it and hide it in his hand. He is proven to be a faithful Lord. And these are the hills that we must lift our eyes up to. In Psalm 2, I mean, 121 verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this is the answer to that phrase. Well, where does my help come from? Or... It can be the statement, 
I lift up my eyes where my help comes from. And why? Because the second statement clarifies it. I know where my help comes from. It comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And this is just like many Hebrew poetry, like much Hebrew poetry, where a statement is made, and then it is repeated again in a more clear way, in a more revealing way. And so looking to the hills, at this time, if David had written this, there would be no doubt. There would be some places where Baal worshippers had built altars and had planted groves on their high hills. Well, there are places that people in this world, they like to build their own places where they take their refuge. They have built their own places. But I'll say this. These high places cannot provide refuge. These are made by the hands of men in their own imagination. They'll never rise above. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is impossible. And so the reader here is saying, this is the high place of God. These are places that can be defended by the word of God and he will defend you. These places will keep us protected through his providence. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And in this knowledge, in the knowledge of his word, God's people will make their pilgrimage hiding in Christ. And what a wonderful phrase that is, in Christ. Many times people think that's kind of a mystical thing. Well, I suppose it could be. But I think the idea of being in Christ is more doctrinal too. But the doctrinal teaching of it, of being in Christ, gives me this kind of a, a mystical feeling, I suppose, if you want to call it that. But I feel protected in the fact that I have been in Christ when he died for me. And being in Christ, when God is pleased with his son, which he is, he then is pleased with me. And he protects me. Christians are to look to the creator of heaven and earth. The one who made the hills. That's the one who keeps them. God would sooner destroy everything than to let mishap and danger take his people. There comes a time when he has planned to destroy all things. But it will be after we have been saved completely. Our eyes must be fixed on higher things than even the heavens and the earth. God has become our helper. And I want you to keep track of how many times the writer of this psalm says that he is a keeper. He keeps us. Now, in the King James, you'll see the word preserve. He preserves us. But it's the same word. How many have thought, oh, poor Cain, when he was challenged by God, where is Abel, your brother? Well, am I my brother's keeper? Well... I know one thing, God is my keeper, and Christ is our keeper, and his blood cries from the ground for me, for my sin. Psalm 121, verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved, who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps you will not slumber. This reminds me of the text that I read one time. A sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He based it upon a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let me read that to you. To me belongeth vengeance. I will recompense. Remember that scripture? We taught that. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. Now sometimes we think that just slipping is not so bad, is it? Just slip and fall, you know, if you just kind of boop and you fall down, well, you just get back up, right? This is not that kind of fall. 
This is a fall where when they fall, they are never going to be recovered. And God says that the wicked have a day in which their foot will slide to their destruction and they cannot be recovered. And that day makes haste. But here we have in this psalm for us, your foot will not be moved. It is in a place that is solid. And God has made that place for you. He has made the earth. He has made the sky. He has made your situation. And all your life is built upon a foundation that God has provided for your faith to rest in. And your foot will not slide. Why? Because he who keeps you will, help you, will, will prevent your foot from sliding. And he will not slumber about it. The pathways of life are unpredictable, aren't they not? Who would have said, my life went exactly as I thought it would go? Well, no one of us, not one of us can say that, can we? It is unpredictable and dangerous, but God has prepared it for us. Our foot and our pathway is in a safe hand of God. We are not going to fall. Jehovah himself and when we read these words in a psalm, the words L-O-R-D means Jehovah. Jehovah will keep us safe as he has promised. He will preserve us. He has taken a way to make our ability to stand firmly in the path of the righteous and then to walk the way in his law. So we may proceed our lives without fear. Because we have a promised rest. We can rest while we walk. We have the peace of God in our lives, knowing that our foot will not be unstable. We will walk. Now, many times we can, we can see in our past where, where things were tough, where things were harsh. And uh, I think we all can do that. I, I try not to dwell in the past, but sometimes when I think about it, it does help me to bless the name of God and how he has, in many ways, in every way, preserved my life. Our God has promised to keep us safe and he will not slumber. Now to us, you know, I think rest is sweet, isn't it not? Uh, rest is a good thing. A good night's rest as you get a little bit older becomes more precious. You know, when I was a young man, I'd work hard and boy, I'd sleep like a rock. They say sleep like a baby, you know, but I've found that babies don't sleep that well, you know, and um, they say sleep like a log. You know, I've never, I've never woke up in a fireplace. I don't know. I don't even know what type of, you know, analogy you can make, but there is something sweet about a hard days working and then you rest. Well, as you get older, there seems to be less and less of that. But I'll tell you what. The rest of the soul always increases as our faith in Christ increases. And we may rest in Christ altogether. Now, this implies something, that while we rest, God does not. It says that he will not slumber. He will not be the guard that falls asleep on his watch. Remember our Lord when he prayed in the garden? Will you not watch with me just one hour? And the disciples slept, but he went on and he prayed for us. And we were the object of his heart's love.
and he prayed for us. And Christ always did those things that pleased the Father, which is the subject of our message this morning. He always did those things that pleased the Father. And so with that, behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. This is Psalm 4. It sounds like a repeat, does it not? Did he not just say that? No. He said in the other verse that he keeps him. He keeps the individual. But now he says he keeps Israel. He keeps Israel. He keeps the one who represents all of the elect. And why would he say that? Because all of God's people are precious to him. He will not let one go. He will not let one fall. He has them all. But he protects the one like he protects the all. If one goes astray, he goes after the one. He has his heart set on the one as he has it set on the all. He will neither slumber nor sleep. He is our keeper. Now... Sometimes the, the pride of man doesn't want to be that person that's kept. You know, we're the ones that uh, want to live like mavericks and we don't want anyone watching us or, uh, or bounding us or putting restraints upon us. And sometimes we're like a, a horse that won't be broken. We won't be put into a stall. But I'll tell you what, after a life of sin, I would love to be embraced by the Almighty and have him keep me in his power, keep me in his spirit. And so when the Lord keeps us, it's a little bit the way a man would keep his treasure. Now, I'm not talking about greed or avarice. Or I'm not talking about, you know, the type of man that would steal in order to feed his greed or anything like this. But a man that knows what is precious to him, he guards his treasure. And we have become the treasure of God he has sent his own son and placed us within his own son to make us precious. And so he keeps us like a man keeps his treasure. He keeps us the way an officer who has been charged with an army to keep a city safe. He's willing to do all those things, to go to battle, to fight, to build embankments, to do anything that's necessary for the citizenry within that city. The Lord is our keeper. He is the one who fights for us, the one who treasures us. The Lord is seen as that one that keeps. He is the keeper of the elect and he is the keeper of the individual. He will not lose one. Verse number five. The Lord is our keeper. Now here we have a phrase that is a title. Previously, we have seen how clearly the psalmist has said that the Lord is our keeper. But notice if you go back and look at the words, he's referred to with pronouns like he does this and it is the Lord that does that. But here we have it phrased in a way where it's more like a title. The Lord is your keeper. That's a title. And he owns that title. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So with the idea that God has owned with pleasure, and I, and, and I like that word with pleasure. I'm going to be dwelling on that word a little bit more in this morning's message. But when the Lord does these things for his people, he takes pleasure in it. And so the Lord is our keeper and our preserver, and he takes pleasure in this. He is like a shield in our right hand. 
It says here that he is, he is, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. And so it is the Lord himself that shades us. Now we may say, well, shades us from what? Well, the, the next verse will explain that. It says, the sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. But the idea that the Lord himself will protect us, that he is on our right hand. There are many implications here. The idea that the Lord does the work, but we are the ones that has him right within us. And we are the ones that are implementing the work. We stand. We have our arm engaged. We are ready to go with our own wills and with our own actions. And we go to the hills and we take up the shield of God. And yet we know that anything that would get to us must go through God. And he is our shield. And he is on our right hand. The idea that he's on our right hand is that he is there, the most important place. I challenge anyone who is in this world to compete with our God when I know that on their right hand is only the devil. They don't even know who's at their right hand. Their strength is in deception and their confidence is in lies. And Satan is there. Little do they know that they use him and that he has attached himself to them and that they use him like a shield. They shield themselves from what is good, from what is right, from what is just. And they've taken upon themselves the pleasure of doing wickedness. Well, that is not our God, is it? He is the God who shields us from that. And so, let's go on to verse number 6. The sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. When we think of the mighty forces in this galaxy and in this world and in this creation, what are we to go against it? We have sent men into space, have we not? I don't think there's a more hostile environment than, the, than, than outside this world. The vacuum of space, the heat, the sun, everything about it would destroy us instantly. And even on this world, you find yourself in the desert, the sun will suck the strength right out of you. It'll take the moisture out of you. It'll take your life. At night, you'll be too cold. The moon is only good for light. But I'll tell you what. The things of this world can literally kill you. But in a more devastating way, the things of this world the powers that be, that rule the day and rule the night, they can take your life and soul. And they have taken the powers of this world that are against God. They consume the wicked at the will of Satan. And yet God says, these powers shall not stand against you. Because God is our keeper. He is the one that protects us from the powers that be in this world that would suck the life right out of you, that would scorch you and take your life and burn you up. Our God shall not let the powers that be in this world destroy us. Our God is our mighty Savior. What can be more dangerous than this world? Well, it cannot be more dangerous than the preserving power of our God. What can harm us in broad daylight while we are watching with boldness and with crass and with pride? God can preserve us. And we have the truth of our God that enables us to stand against all eyes. 
whether this harm comes through broad daylight or whether it comes through the darkness of hidden shrewdness and treachery, God is there seeing all things and protecting us. So the day and night can comprise all things or all time. The idea that God protects us both day and night is the idea that there is no time in which God does not protect us. He is always keeping us. We are always being kept by God. The last, or verse number 20, uh, verse number 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And this is again a repeating of that previous verse in a more understanding way. Evil can only be successful when God is not protecting. Evil cannot accomplish its goal against us. It may work against us. You may see its effect, but it will not accomplish its goal. And what is that goal? It is the destruction of your soul. Evil cannot destroy the soul of the one who is kept by God. No weapon formed against us will prosper and achieve our death. No scheme will ever be devised that will ensnare our souls completely. God will only use it for our good. He will turn it around and make even the blows of the enemy bless us. Nothing formed against us and implemented will ever be successful. The extent of God's keeping is far-reaching. Far-reaching is just, it's an understatement. It is truly an understatement. The dangers, there's no danger that is so small that we cannot even detect it that God is not guarding us against. And there is no danger that is so great that it would even fill the call of creation that God cannot do with the breath of his nostrils. There's nothing that God cannot do for us. The dangers are not only in this life, but God has promised to keep us for eternity. We receive eternal salvation. The Almighty who's created the heaven and the earth is the keeper of your life. He preserves your soul. Verse number eight. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so we can see the Lord will keep us as we rise up and go to work. He'll keep us as we come back and, and rest from our day's labor. But that is one way of looking at it, the literal way of looking at it. But he will also keep us as we come in in our youth, and as we go out in our old age. He will also be the one that we can say he begins. What God has begun, God will finish. Any time that we exit from sin, God will keep us and keep us until we enter into his presence. Amen. Amen. There has been said, it's been said that the most dangerous time of flying is when you take off and when you land. And I believe that this is also true with the idea that when God has, wants us to have that peace of heart, that he says, don't be afraid to begin and don't be afraid to start because I will be there at the end. I will be there in your goings out and in your coming in. And just like any important project, anything that you have, it must begin well and it must end well. And so God ends this, this psalm that we can sing in our pilgrimage, that we who have begun will end with God and we will be in his hands because he is our redeemer and 
our Lord. God will keep us and preserve us on our journey to him. God will keep us from going into destruction, even though his preserving grace may lead through many dangerous places. But he keeps us going out and coming in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we want to thank you for your grace and your kindness and your promises that you have given us. And you are our keeper. And we, are, we feel treasured by you. And we delight in your delight in us being in Christ. And so, Father, we sleep carefully. We sleep just full of peace and rest, knowing that you have never slumbered, that your watch is always there, that you have abounded toward us in grace and mercy. And so, Father, we pray, may your name be lifted up and may Christ be seen by sinners and saved. We ask this for the glory of our God and our Christ. Amen.